Well, good morning. It's uh, 5.21 a.m. here in Portland, and I'm recording a podcast before heading to HP to give a talk on DRM, which you can find at uh, craphound.com slash hpdrm.txt, all lowercase, uh, in a friend's guest room. I'm heading down to the Bay Area today after my talk, and I'm uh, going to stop on the way and see an old writing teacher of mine, Kate Wilhelm, in Eugene, Oregon, whom I haven't seen in about 10 years. I'm very excited about that. So, on with After the Siege, I'm going to read one more scene, maybe five minutes worth, and uh, put it on the Internet Archive. I see that iTunes Store has put um, my podcast in its feeds, so I'm going to go public with this thing today, so I expect that a lot of readers are going to join us, uh, or listeners, I guess. Here we go, uh, After the Siege, third installment. Two weeks and one day after the siege began, Hermata came home, and the city came for Valentine. Mata was grimy and exhausted, and she favored one leg as she went about the flat making them cold cereal with water, all the milk had spoiled, and dried fruits. Trover looked curiously at her, as though he didn't recognize her, but eventually he got in her way, and she snapped at him to move already, and he pitched a relieved fit, pounding his fists and howling. How that little boy could howl! She sat down at the table with Valentine, and the two of them ate their cereal together. Your father? He said he was digging yesterday. That's what he did all day yesterday. Her mother's eyes glinted. Good. We need more trenches. We'll fortify the whole city with them. Spread them out all the way to their lines. Trenches we can move through without being seen or shot. We'll take the war to those bastards and slip away before they know we've killed them. Mata had apparently forgotten all about not talking to Valentine like a grown-up. The knock at the door came then, and Mata answered it, and it was the woman from the city again. Your little girl, she said. No, Mata said. Her voice was flat and would not brook any contradiction. She bossed her nine brothers, Valentine's uncles, now scattered to the winds, and then commanded a squadron in the revolution, and no one could win an argument with her. As far as Valentine knew, no one could win an argument with her. No, the woman from the city said. No is not an option, comrade. Mata drew herself up. My husband digs. I fight. My daughter cares for our son. That's enough from this family. There are old people in this building who need water brought for them. There's a crèche for your boy underground, and he'll be happy enough there. Your little girl is strong, and the old people are weak. No, her mother said. I'm very sorry, but no. She didn't sound the least bit sorry. The woman from the city went away. Mata sat down and went back to eating her cereal with water without a word. But there was another knock at the door fifteen minutes later. The woman from the city had brought along an old hero with one arm and one eye. He greeted Mata by name, and Mata gave him a smart salute. He spoke quietly near her ear for a moment. She saluted him again, and he left. You'll carry water, Mata said. Valentine didn't mind. It was a chance to get out of the flat. One day of babysitting, the human tantrum had convinced her that any chore was preferable to being cooped up with him. She carried water that day. She had expected to be balancing buckets over her shoulders like in the school books, but they fitted her with a bubble suit that distributed the weight over her whole body and then filled it up with a hose until she weighed nearly twice what she normally did. Other kids were in the stairwells wearing identical bubble suits, sloshing up the steps to old people's flats that smelled funny. The old women and men that Valentine saw that day pinched her cheeks and then emptied out her bubble suit into their cisterns. It was exhausting work, and by the end of the day she had stopped making even perfunctory conversation with the other water carriers. The old people she met at the day's end were bitter about being left alone and thirsty all day, and they snapped at her, and they didn't thank her at all. She picked Trover up from the crèche 
and he demanded that he be carried, and she had half a mind to toss him down the stairs, but she noticed that he had a bruise over his eye, and his hands and face were sticky and dirty, and she decided that he'd had a hard day, too. Mata and Popa weren't at home, and when they got there, so Valentine made dinner. More cold cereal and some cabbage and with leftover dumplings kept cool in a bag, hung out the window. And then, um, and then when, they hadn't, when they still hadn't returned by bedtime, Valentine tucked Trover in and fell asleep herself. One month after the siege began, Valentine's mother came home in tears. What is it, Mata? Valentine said, as soon as her mother came through the door. Are you hurt? Her mother had come home hurt more than once in a month bandaged or splinted or covered in burn ointment or hacking at some deep chemical irritation in her throat and nose and lungs. Her mother's eyes were swollen like they had been on the day they'd been caught, that she'd been caught by the gas and they'd had to do emergency robot field surgery on them, but there were no sutures today. Tears had swollen in her eyes. New trench buster missiles on the eastern front, she said. The anti-missiles are too slow for them. She sobbed a terrifying sound that Valentine had never heard from her mother. The bastards are trading with the EU and the Americans for better weapons, and they say that they're on the same side. They say we are loyal, lawless thieves who deprive them all of their royalties. Valentine had heard that the Americans and the EU had declared for the other side, while the Russians and the Koreans and the Brazilians had declared for the city. The war gossip was everywhere. The old people didn't pinch her cheeks when she brought water, not anymore. They told her about the war and the enemies who had come to drive them back into the Dark Ages. Mata, are you hurt? Her mother was covering her face with her hands and sobbing so loudly it drowned out the tantrum Trover threw every night the second she came through the door. Her shoulder shook. She gulped her sobs. Then she lowered her wet, snotty, sticky hands and wiped them on the thighs of her jumpsuit. She hugged Valentine so hard that Valentine heard her skinny ribs creak. They killed your father, Vala. Your father is dead. Valentine stood numb for a moment, then pulled free of her mother's hug. No, she said calmly. Papa is digging away from the front where it's safe. She'd expected that her mother would die, not her father. She'd known that all along, since her mother stepped out of the door talking of heroism, known it fatalistically and never dwelt on it, never even admitted it. In her mind, though, she'd always seen a future where her father and Trover and she lived together as heroes of this war, which would surely be over soon, and visited her mother's memorial four times a year, the way they did the memorials for the comrade heroes who'd been martyred in the revolution. The death toll was gigantic. Three apartment buildings had disappeared on her street, with no air raid warning, no warning of any kind. All dead. Why should her brave mother live on? No, she said again. You're mistaken. I saw the body, her mother said, shrieking like Trover. I held his head. He's dead, Vala. Valentine didn't understand what her mother was saying, but she certainly didn't want to hang around the flat and listen to this raving. She turned on her heel and walked out. It was full dark out there and there was snow on the ground and wet snow whipping along in the wind, and she didn't have her too small winter coat on, but she wasn't going to stay and listen to her mother's nonsense. On a corner, a man from the city told her she was breaking curfew and told her to go home or she'd end up getting shot. She shivered and glared at him and ignored him and set off in a random direction. She certainly wasn't going to stand on that corner and listen to his lunacy. There were soldiers drinking in a cellar on another street, and they called out to her, and what they said wasn't the kind of thing he said to a little girl, though she knew well enough what it meant. Now she was cold and soaked through and shivering uncontrollably, and she didn't know where her father was. She began to run. Someone from the city shouted at her to stop, and so she pelted through the ruins of a bomb building and then down one of the old streets from before the revolution, one of the streets they hadn't yet straightened out and rebuilt. The enemy hadn't bombed it yet, and she wondered if that was because 
This was the kind of dark and broken and smelly street they wanted the city to be returned to, so they left it untouched as an example of what the defenders should be working towards if they wanted to escape with their lives. Down the street she ran, and then down an alley, and another street. She stopped running when she came to a dead end, and her chest heaved. Running had warmed her up a little, but she hadn't had much to eat except cabbage and cold cereal with water for weeks, and she couldn't run like she used to. The cold stole back over her. It was full dark, and the blackout curtains on the windows meant that not a sliver of light escaped. The moonless, cloudy night made everything as dark as a cave. Finally, she cried. She hadn't cried since she found out that Tina had died. She hadn't even liked Tina, but, you have, but to have someone die that soon after seeing them was scary, like you had died almost, almost. The wizard came on her there, weeping. He appeared out of the mist, carrying a little light the size of a pea that he cupped in his hands to muffle most of it. He was about her father's age, but with her mother's look of having survived something terrible without having survived altogether. He dressed like it was the old days in fancy bright-colored clothes, and he was well-fed in a city that no one else, in a way that no one else in the city was. Hello there, he said. He got down on his hunkers so he could look at her in the eye. Why are you crying? Valentine hated grown-ups who patronized her, and the wizard sounded like he could believe, like he believed that no little girl could possibly have anything real to cry about. My dad died in the war, she said, in a trench. Oh, the American trench busters, he said knowingly. Lots of children's lost their daddies today, I bet. And that made her stop crying. Lots of children, lots of daddies, fathers, she hated the word daddy. Mothers, too. Let's get you cleaned up, put a coat on you, feed you, and send you home, all right? She looked warily at him. She knew all about strange men who offered to take you home. But she had no idea where she was, and she was dark and shivering, and couldn't stop. My mother is a hero and a soldier, and she's killed a lot of men, Valentine said. He nodded. I shall keep that in mind, he said. The wizard looked in the old town, in an old building, but inside it was new as anything she had ever seen. The walls swooped and curved, the furniture was gaily colored and new, like it had just been printed that day. There was so much light, they'd been saving it at her building. There was so much food. He gave her hamburgers and fizzy elderflower, then steak frites, then rich dumplings as big as her fist, stuffed with goose livers. He had working robots, lots of them, and they scurried after him, doing the dishes and tidying and wiping up the slushy footprints. And when they arrived and he took her coat, old familiar laser lights uh, played over her, the kind, ev the kind of everywhere-at-once measuring lasers that they used to have at clothing stores. By the time dinner was done, there were two pairs of fresh trousers, two woolly jumpers, a heavy w winter coat, three pairs of white cotton pants. All of her pants had gone gray when she'd started having to launder them rather than getting them fr printed fresh on Sundays, and a, a bra? She gave him a hard look. She had the knife she'd used on the hamburger in her hand. My mother taught me to kill, she said. The wizard had a face that looked like he spent a lot of time laughing with it, and so even when he looked scared, he also looked like he was laughing. He held up his hands. That wasn't my idea, that's just the programming. If the printer thinks you need a bra, it makes a bra. Lisa had a bra, though Valentine wasn't convinced that she needed it. But she had noticed a certain uncomfortable jiggling weight climbing the stairs, hadn't she? Running? She hadn't looked in the mirror in, well, since the siege, practically. There's a bathroom there to change into, he said. His bathroom was clean and neat, and there were six toothbrushes beside the sink in a, in a holder. Who else lives here, she said, coming at her in her new claws. The bra felt really weird. I have a lot of friends who come and see me now and again. Maybe you'll come back. How come your place is like the, the war never happened? I'm the wizard, that's why, he said. I can make magic. 
His robots tied up her extra clothes in waterproof rip sheets for her, then helped her into a warm slicker with a hood. Tell your mother that you met someone from the city who fed you and gave you a change of clothes, he said, holding open the door. He'd explain to her where to go from there to get out to the old shopping street, and from there she could manage on her own, especially since he'd given her one of his little pea lights to carry with her. You're not from the city, she said. You got me, he said. So tell her you met a wizard. She thought about what her mother would say to that, especially when the answer when it was the answer to the question, Where have you been? I'll tell her I met someone from the city, she said. You're a clever girl, he said. That's today's reading. Um, I'm off to Hewlett Packard. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you in a day or two. Bye.